is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This morning we're going to be we're going to be um, reading Psalm 25 and and speaking from it, and we're actually going to sing a portion of it as well uh, later on. But before we get started with the, with the sermon, I want to I want to go back and and talk just briefly about um, a couple of things that involve the process of of gaining what we can get from the Psalms. So one of the things, when you read the book of Psalms, when you read the book of Proverbs, you find, as Jimmy was preaching through, um, touching on financial aspects of life, when you read the book of Proverbs, you find um, wisdom kind of compressed into little into little nuggets. And, and, and generally speaking, they're true. Generally speaking, if a man follows a biblical principle in finances, barring something else going on, you have certain outcomes that come from it. And anyone can benefit from that. It doesn't have to be a follower of Jesus. Anyone benefits from wise financial principles. With the book of Psalms, it's continuing with the poetic literature. It's still poetry. It's still Hebrew poetry. Um, but it has a slightly different twist to it. It's not just wisdom. It's actually um, the heart cry of men down through the years. So um, with when you're dealing with Hebrew poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job has some of it as well. One of the things that's different is poetry, poetry to a Hebrew, to an ancient Israelite, didn't have rhyming and meter and the things that I consider a good poem to have. You know, if Mary Had a Little Lamb didn't have any rhyming or meter in it, we wouldn't know Mary Had a Little Lamb. We would just, somebody had written it on a piece of paper and it would have disappeared. But for the Hebrews, poetry actually consisted of the the form. And so the form that they used was something called parallelism. Um, and once I say this to you and you go back and read, you'll if you haven't never heard this before, you'll see it everywhere. There are three kinds of parallelism. There's synonyms, so a synonymous parallelism, and then antithetical parallelism, that's opposite. And then a, um, a synthetic parallelism. I'll give you some examples. So in Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Well, firmament and heavens kind of the same thing. So he kind of says the same thing twice. That's a synonymous parallelism. He makes a statement and then backs it up with a similar one. And so it's kind of like... Kind of like Jesus saying, truly, truly, you know, you make sure that the point gets driven home. An antithetical or an opposite one, the, the Proverbs are full of them because Solomon's always comparing um, a wise path with a foolish path. So it's a lot of them, but this is one of them. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. The opposite sides of a truth. And then the synthetic parallelism is when you build from one line to the next. So here's one. And these are, in my opinion, I don't think you would even have to have this because it could be synonymous as well. But this is one that, um, uh, this is one that I think would be that style. This is a, a one in Proverbs. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. That's a statement. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. So it's a building. It's not just a repeat of one statement, but it's a this, and then this is built on it. The righteous runneth into the name of the Lord being a strong tower. And so when you're reading the Psalms, you'll see that over and over. Now, here's the interesting thing. If we were, if we Americans were the ancient Hebrews, and we liked our Mary had a little lamb rhyming. I love rhyming. And to me, free verse is not poetry, in my opinion. Somebody managed to convince somebody that what they were writing was worth reading. It's not poetry. So all of you English grammar people out there, don't listen to your teacher. It has to have rhyming to be poetry. I hope there's no teachers in here. So, so if we had been back there and we had been writing Hebrew and we had been writing it with the, with the rhyming and the rhythm like we have now, guess what? Years and years later when that Hebrew would get translated in English, all of our poetry would be lost. Because it's very difficult to translate from one language to another and carry the rhyming words across. And so 
Thankfully, the Lord had it turned around the other way, and he gave them a structure poetry that can be translated through. We can see the parallels. We can read English translation of Hebrew parallelism, and it's right there in front of us. I think that's really cool. So that is the one side of it, that, that when, you're, when you're reading the book of Psalms, you're reading poetry, and you're reading, and you can see that over and over as it goes through. The second thing is that, that poetry then, the same as poetry now, songs then, the same as songs now, were generally written in difficult times, hard times, intense times. So, for instance, we have, um, we have songs that are written now that are, that are just regular old songs, secular songs that are celebratory or I want to kill myself or I'm really in love, but most of them come out of times that have intense emotional feeling. And so people say things in songs, not psalms, people say things in songs, whether it's Christian or secular, that they may feel strongly in that moment. Actually, we sang one this morning, and as I was, as we were, as I was thinking about it, I thought, that's actually an illustration. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. I would bet that the person who wrote that song didn't always feel that elated about trusting Jesus. Would you agree with me on that? Because we're humans. But in that moment that they wrote that song, maybe God had really come through for them, and that just expressed their heart. And maybe a week later they were struggling with something, and they were trying to put their trust back in the Jesus that they had written the song about. I don't know the story behind it. I just suspect that that may have been the case. And so when you're reading the book of Psalms, you're getting the exact same thing. You're getting real people going through really hard times, pouring out their heart. Generally speaking, the context or the, or the, the framework is, I'm going to maybe rail against God, rail against injustice, God, where are you? And then come back and try to find what it is, how I can go back and look at God again as my sovereign Lord and how I can get back under trusting him again. A lot of the Psalms have that format. The oldest Psalm that we know of is Psalm 90, which was written by Moses around 1450 BC. The newest song, Psalm would have been post-exilic or about the time like Psalm 137 would have been written probably by somebody during the Babylonian exile, so about 550 B.C. So it spans 900 to 1,000 years from one end to the other. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of time elapsed that goes through there. But you find humans being basically the same. And when we go and read the Psalms today, guess what? I can go in there and I can cry my heart out on the, on the songs and I can understand the anger um, when things don't seem to go right. I can understand a man in Psalm 73 saying, I'd, I'd almost given up because here I am trying to live my life and all that wicked man over there, he's getting all the benefits and I'm getting all the bad stuff. I can, I can still understand that in 2021. That is clear as a bell to me as a human. So if you read the Psalms and, you've, and you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures and you're reading through and you're reading Samuel and its history and you jump to the New Testament and you're reading the Gospels and it's about Jesus and then you turn to Psalms and you're like, I'm reading Psalm 137 and the last verse says, or one of the last verses says, happy shall he be that smashes your babies against a rock. Whew. I don't know how to deal with that. You're dealing with it in the same way that he's dealing with it. The frustration of looking at life that isn't working the way you think it should. But there's a lot in there that those people come back and center in God. So that's where, that's the, that's the kind of the basis for understanding this. Um, and we've taken it, and we've, it's called singing the songs, singing the psalms. And a lot of the church through the years, the New Testament church, the early New Testament church, sang the psalms to each other. I don't know what that sounded like. I'm pretty sure it didn't sound like what we do today. But there have been some songs written from pieces of the psalms, and we're going to sing one of those this afternoon in music, or today, in music that we um, know today. All right, having said all that, let's get to Psalm 25 and commence reading. Um, I'm reading from the King James today. I know Jimmy doesn't normally use that, but I'm reading from the King James, and I will say why I'm reading from the King James. I think that it's poetic, and I like poetry to be poetic. And I memorized, everything I memorized growing up was in King James, so it's just easier for me to translate it. 
straight out of the Bible. And plus, the song we're going to sing, all of the words, and it, by the way, the song we're singing is on the back of your bulletin. So as we sing it later, you'll see the words are almost word perfect out of the King James. So we are going to start here. Psalm 25. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed with transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day long. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindness, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me, have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, I just want to um, commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be here, that you would um, use the words that are said for conviction if necessary, for encouragement. Um, for many of us, for inspiration to just, as David said earlier, to get back in the fight and get in, and uh, get on board with your task. Lord, I pray that um, nothing I say would be um, would be of offense to anyone, but that it could be, if it's truth, that it would be taken, and that if I say something wrong, that it would be corrected, Lord. And I pray for your mercy. Holy Spirit be with us here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to I want to do something as we start. I would like everybody to just just this is going to be rhetorical questions, but I'd like you to just close your eyes where you're sitting, and I want you to think. I'm going to ask a couple of questions and I want you to just think about them and see what comes to you. How many of you came here this morning? With a sense of, did you come here this morning with a sense of shame for perhaps some unconfessed sin or something in your life that you know is not right? How many of you came this morning ashamed of some aspect of your life and you may not even be sin, it may just be something that you look at and you think it's a character defect or it's something that I'm struggling with and I'm just not mastering? Is there something in your life that's defeating you and you feel ashamed of it? All right, you can look at me again. I don't know if anybody had anything go through their mind, but when I thought about it for myself, um, there's actually, it's easy to live your life ashamed. And, and part of the reason for that is because we're broken and we live in a broken world. And so things happen to us or we do things that we wish we hadn't. We wish we could control. And we're faced with the reality that we can't, that we can't do when we, we have something happen to us and we can't do anything about it. We're out of control. Or we feel in our own lives, if you... <laughs> I'll tell you something I'm ashamed of is sitting in the parking lot. Don't look in my work truck this morning. I, I am the most disorganized person in the world. And, and matter of fact, this morning I'm looking for my belt. Can't find my belt. My wife says I have to wear a belt to church. 
And Serena says, did you look in the laundry room? No, why would I look in the laundry room? Because there's a belt box in there. Now, I live in this house. And I said, there's a, what do you mean there's a belt box? She said, there's a box in, in, the, library, in the laundry room that has for, for belts. And I said, really? She said, come on. So she took me down there to the laundry room. And she said, see, right up there on that top shelf? And sure enough, there's belts on it. So I pulled it down. Guess what? I found two belts I've been missing for months. I'm wearing one of them. I'm like, I finally got this belt back. Well, I, I thought I'd lost it somewhere because I lose everything. I am terribly disorganized. I don't want Scott Lawrence anywhere near my truck because I know what he'll think about me. I mean, we're, we're chucking tools out of it this morning. So there's enough room for four of us to sit in there to come to church. It's bad. I'm embarrassed of it. I'm ashamed of it. And I can't seem to, like, I, I'll get it organized. And then Dietrich came out the other day. I had it organized a couple months ago. He's like, Papa, what did you do to your truck? I can't seem to stay on top of it. So we have things, whether it's a character defect or whether it's something that is actually sin in our lives, there are things that, that drag us down we are ashamed of. In the context of the, of the passage this morning, David is having something put on him, though, that he's ashamed of or that he doesn't want to be ashamed of. Now, um, there needs to be a little bit of a clarity here. Shame and being ashamed are two different things. And some of your, some of your, passage, some of your um, translations probably say put to shame or perhaps disgraced. I think the NIV says put to shame, and the CSB says disgraced, if I remember correctly. But put to shame would be similar to being ashamed. And here, let me, let me describe it. Shame is a, is a, can be a good thing. It's a God-given emotion that he gives to us when there's sin in our lives that we are not dealing with. We are filled with shame when somebody confronts us, like David was when, King David was when, when Nathan confronted him about Bathsheba, and he repented because he was dealing with real sin, and that shame was on him, and that's from God. So if you're here this morning, and there's sin in your life, and you don't experience any shame when we're talking about it, that's not a good thing. And you need to, if you're serious about it, you need to get back home and talk to the Lord about why you don't have any conviction for sin in your life. That's shame. To be put to shame, though, is to have something put on you that you can't do anything about. That's where we get the word ashamed. So, for instance, um, relationships are oftentimes a sense of shame. There is, there is a... Uh, Someone I know in Surrey that I think very highly of. And I was absolutely astounded when I found out who his father was. Because I've only been here for 18 years, so I'm still figuring out the, the uh, relationships. I was astounded when I found out who his father was. And I imagine that he has been very ashamed for his whole life of who his father was because there was such a difference between them. So you may be here this morning and you are being put to shame. You're dealing with a relationship that you can't do anything about because you're not that other person and it's pushing you down. It may be, um, maybe it's a child that is not living the way you want him to live and and it's a source of frustration, and it's a source of grief, and it's a source of shame. You don't want people, I don't really want people to know what my child is like. Or maybe it's a, a spouse that you're trying to do everything that's right, and they're just not, or the other way around. It's oftentimes relational issues that put us to shame. But in this situation, David is being chased. Actually, it is a relational issue. I don't know the context of this psalm, but I wonder, being what it says it is, I kind of wonder whether... It's not shortly after um, he is, becomes the giant killer, having killed Goliath, and then he marries Saul's daughter, and then Saul begins to hate him because he knows he's going to be the next king, and he has to run. It sounds almost like it'd be in that context, like he's hiding in a cave, hoping that Saul doesn't find him. But he says, I don't want to be put to shame. Let me not be ashamed. And the reason he doesn't want to be ashamed is, God, I've, I've hung everything. I've hung everything that I know to do on the belief that if I trust in you and walk with you and follow you, you'll come through and you will make yourself known in my life. And has God done that up to that point? Absolutely. David goes from being a shepherd boy to being a folk hero because he steps up as this little, I say little, as this teenager 
grabs a sling and kills the biggest guy in town and rescues their whole country from slavery. That's a pretty big deal. And he doesn't even seem scared when, he, when the story occurs. He comes in there and he says, why isn't somebody dealing with the giant? And when he walks up to Goliath, he, he says, you're going down because you're coming against the God of Israel. You're not coming against me. You're coming against the God of Israel. And as, you're rep- as God's representative, you're going down. So God has come through for him and come through for him. He goes to the king's court and his ability to play beautiful music and sing songs to Saul calms the evil spirits that are in him. And he just rockets to the top and then suddenly... Saul's trying to kill him and he has to run for his life and he has to keep running for his life and he has to keep one eye out the cave all the time because he doesn't know anytime somebody's going to be sneaking up. And this is his life. So you can imagine that it would be a little disillusioning to suddenly lose what seems to be God's protection. God, what have I done wrong? So I have three points this morning. If you find yourself in that situation, the first, the first point is this. Out of the first three verses. The enemy can defeat you. And I've spent my life with the knowledge that the power of Christ in me can defeat the enemy. And I have spent my life knowing that Christ defeated the enemy on the cross. But the fact of the matter is, is when you look around in the world and you look around in the church, you don't see a lot of victorious living. You see a lot of defeated people. So how come a foe that's been defeated can keep defeating us? So the first, the first thing to take on here in this psalm is the fact that we can be defeated by the enemy that's real. Now, the enemy is not just Satan. The enemy is the world. What David was sharing this morning, the world is after us. On steroids right now. That world that is opposed to God is after us. But we have something else inside of us, and that is our old nature. Our nature that is bound and determined to take us down a path to destruction. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the church used to refer to it as. Those enemies can defeat you. You can be defeated. You can start right and go completely wrong. And I've seen it happen. Does it have to happen? No, it doesn't. But it can. And if we don't guard ourselves, David, if you get in the fight and you think, I don't need to wear any armor, I got this. You're in big trouble. You have to be prepared for battle. So David is crying out, Lord, don't let me be ashamed. I've put everything on trusting you. I've put everything on following you with my whole heart, giving everything to you, and my enemies are now after me, and they want to kill me. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let me be put to shame because of somebody else. And by the way, Lord, I think kind of written in here, by the way, Lord, your name is tied to this as well. So how does the enemy defeat us? If he can defeat us, but we don't want him to, how does that happen? All right, let me, let me give you an illustration um, that happened at our house recently. We had two roosters in a small cage, and a skunk got into the cage. Uh, I have no, I, we never have figured out how the skunk got in the cage. There was no openings. He didn't dig under. I, I don't know how he got in there, but he was in there. And we heard this terrible racket one morning, went out there. And the skunk, the cage is about four foot by eight foot, maybe. So the roosters couldn't escape by flying out. They had a lid, it had a, a roof on it. The skunk was chasing them around and around and around. And the roosters were just running in a circle, trying to stay ahead of the skunk. And as long as they kept running, They kept winning. That is to say, they weren't dying. And we went out there, and and so we're like, you know, it's a skunk. It's not, you know, something that you can deal with. So I went for my gun, and by the time I came back, one of the roosters had given up. The other rooster hadn't given up, but one of them had just, I am not kidding, just laid down. And the skunk climbed on top of him and was proceeding to pull the feathers out of its neck and trying to kill it. By the time I got back with the gun and dispatched the, uh, the skunk, I saved the rooster's life. But it was a remarkable illustration of what happens when you stop fighting. Now, for the rooster, it didn't look like a fight. It just looked like he was running. But in running, he was fighting. He was fighting for something that was important. That was his life. When he gave up, that's when the skunk could catch him. 
So the enemy defeats us. If he can get us to look at something other than what is real. So this is, this is how I say it. By causing us to lose focus on what is God's truth. Now, there, I'm not meaning to be uh, relative here, but there are, there are different truths. So for instance, um, there's, there's the real story, and then there's your perception of it. So when you have, let's say, a... Um, a husband and a wife, and they're kind of having a, a, a bit of a, a fight with each other. Probably their thought process runs something like this. The husband thinks, I just don't understand it. I do so much for my wife. I am a committed husband. I'm, I try my best to make this work. I take out the trash for her, for crying out loud. I just don't understand why she thinks I have all these issues. And the wife is thinking, I don't know. I don't understand my husband. He, he thinks by taking out the trash, somehow or another, that's loving me. And both of them are upset at each other. Both of them thinking that the other one's in the wrong because our perception of reality, our perception of truth, generally comes from ourself. Obviously, that's how we perceive it, is from inside of ourselves. What's the real truth? I don't know what the real truth is in that story. Maybe it's the wife's fault this time, or maybe it's the husband's fault, or maybe it's both of their fault, or maybe they just like really need to get over themselves. What I'm saying is, is that oftentimes we perceive something as being a particular way because it's right in our face. That rooster felt like truth was, I'm not going to get away, so I may as well give up. And he didn't know I was coming with something bigger than the skunk. So... If the enemy, whether it's ourselves, our old nature, whether it's the world around us, can convince us, or whether it's a demonic spirit in our life can convince us that something other than God's truth is truth, we're going to act on it, and it's going to knock us down. Now, I'm going to uh, make my wife ashamed now and tell something on her. (laughs) She always says, man, I never know what you're going to say when you get up there. So it's kind of fun, actually. It can kind of terrorize her a little bit. I, I don't know. I have a perverse delight in causing her to be embarrassed. When we were first married, we'd go you know, to get gas, and I'd walk in the convenience store to pay for it, and then I'd come out pretending to be drunk and like staggering across the, the parking lot back to the car. And the closer I would get, the lower down she would sink until by the time I got there, you couldn't see there was someone in there. She's like, why do you do that? I said, I don't know. I think it's because you keep sliding down. fun. I don't remember who preached it, but somebody preached, Dick, it might have been you that actually shared it, but talking about um, the, the, four, the four different uh, soils that God can plant his seed into, the good soil, the stony soil, the, the weedy soil, and I'll tell you, that's been, a, that's been a sort of a, that's been sort of a statement at our house now. So, when, when the things that feel true are right in your face like this and they're overwhelming you, we say, the weeds are choking me. Because that's what it feels like. I know, I know that there's life beyond all of the things that are pressing me down right now, but right now, I've got to get all the bills done today, and the house is a mess, and somehow or another, I've got to get back out to the garden. For those of you that are women and know those things. Can you appreciate that statement? Oh, and by the way, the kids, you know, aren't acting right either at the moment. And so the other morning she said to me, she said, I was about to leave, and she said, the weeds are choking me. And I know what I meant. Right now, what feels true is the crushingness of life. And I don't know if it was that day or not, but I came home and she had been doing bills and she was not happy. She was quite sad because she had missed a payment and now we had a late payment. And it was, she was ashamed of it because I don't do those sorts of things. And she was ashamed of having not measured up in that process, which was more crushing, weed-pressing weight, right? The classic story of not seeing God's truth and seeing your own truth is Peter getting out of the boat to walk to Jesus. He was walking on water. And then he saw reality, and the reality was he was walking on water. 
and you can't walk on water. And he started going down. So oftentimes we are, we are mocked because Jesus says to us, Paul says to us in the New Testament, I want you to do it this way because this is what it looks like to follow Christ. And the world says, you can't do it that way. It doesn't work. And so we have to decide, are we going to follow our truth? Are we going to follow God's truth? Which takes us to the next point. The first point, the enemy can defeat you, and he does it by causing us to lose focus on what is God's truth. Second point is to focus on what matters to God. Now, probably some of you here today are saying, Micah, that is about as cliche as it can be. Oh, yeah, just focus on what? Focus on what it means. Focus on what God really wants us to do. You know, the problem is oftentimes the truth is relatively simple. And oftentimes what it really takes is just buckling down and doing what you think you can't do. Have you ever had an experience like that? Continuing on, show me your ways in verse 4. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day long. Your truth, your ways, you teach them to me, and I'll walk in it. Do your problems matter to the Lord? I'm not talking about big problems. I'm not talking about like my marriage is falling apart. I'm talking about the little problems like I can't figure out why there's sand in the water that keeps clogging up my filter coming into the house. Does God care about little problems? It's actually fairly easy to pray for big stuff. You may not expect God to answer, but it's at least easy to pray for it. It's the little stuff. Can God change me? Can God change me? I have a, I have a real issue. This is a true thing. I have a real problem with negativity. My wife says I'm a martyr. Someone said one time there are no living martyrs, so I'm not sure how that works. I tend to look at, you know, if she says something to me like, Micah, uh, I really need you to at least try to bring the mail in when you pick it up at the end of the lane so that I don't lose a bill somewhere in your truck that you're so disorganized. Oh, I'm such a failure. I'm such a failure. I'll never get this right. And, and then she gets angry at me, and then we have a nice little, you know, brouhaha because that's what you do, I guess. The reality is, the reality is, I don't want to be that way. I want to be able to accept it when she says to me, or when somebody says to me, this is what it is that your problem is, and you need to fix it. I want to be able to say, thank you, I'll get right on that, and deal with it. But she's been living with me for 18 years, and I'm still doing it. And I recognize it, but I have a hard time changing. That's a little thing, right? It's a personality issue, character flaw. And I really would like it to be changed. But you know what I don't do? I don't want it to be changed so badly that I invest everything it takes to change it. And that's where the problem actually oftentimes arises. I say, yep, I want to be different. Yep, that's definitely an issue that I need to deal with. but I just can't quite pull it off when it gets there. And so the problem really is oftentimes as simple as, are you going to obey no matter what it costs or disobey? And so oftentimes we say it's a cliche, but then at the same time, that cliche is actually truth. We've just kind of, in our brilliance and wisdom, pushed it aside and said there must be a more complicated process. And so we psychoanalyze ourselves and we tell ourselves why we have these issues, and it's just a part of our psyche, and it's how we were made growing up. And really, the fact matters we need to just get over ourselves and start trusting Jesus and walking with Him. That's what it really boils down to oftentimes. So we focus on what matters to God. Now, the way to focus on what matters to God is to find out what it is that matters to God. If you don't know what matters to God, then you can't really focus on it. You're going to be right back to what it is. So, so he takes the first three verses, and he says... I'm really upset. My enemies are coming after me. Don't let me be ashamed. I put everything on the line for following you, Lord. And then he takes the whole middle of the chapter to remind himself of what it means to walk with God. So let's go through a little bit of that. Lead me in your truth. What is your truth? You're going to teach me, is what he says. 
And then he says, remember not the sins of my youth. Why not? Nor my transgressions. Don't remember the sins of my youth. Why? Because I sinned. Because I did things against you. Oh yeah, that's right. That puts me on the same level as the guy who's chasing me. Separated from you except by your grace. A reminder to himself. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. Oh God, I need to be meek too. All the paths of the Lord. Now listen to this one. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Um, Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation of them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Condemnation comes when we are in conflict with Christ. But when we're walking in the Spirit, when we're actually living the way we should, by His grace, surrendering to Him, and then confessing it, and when we do something wrong and getting back on the path... That's when the blessing comes, and that's when we can know we're right. So at this point, what he's saying is, God, you're bigger than me. God, you see a bigger picture than me. So I don't think um, for myself that I see a very big picture. Matter of fact, I know for myself I don't see a very big picture because oftentimes my picture is limited. Um, first of all, it's limited by my own experience. I have actually not very much experience. I read a lot of books, and that gains more experience for myself. But oftentimes the battle that I'm facing, whatever it is, whether it's, whether it's family issues or whether it's like my own personal, like trying to overcome the things that are negative in my own life or whether it's job-related stuff or whether it's just the world around me right now and trying not to be completely depressed at how the world is at the moment. Those things, are, lim are I'm limited. I have a limited scope. And so I have to trust that God knows when I have no idea when I'm in a cave like David and I'm wondering, how are you ever going to get us out of this without us being put to shame? He knows. C.S. Lewis talks about seeing the whole truth. And he said, the closer you are to the front, to the, to the, to the battle, the closer you are to the battle, the less you know about the war. And he, he said that because he was in World War I. And he said, the soldier in the trenches in World War I knew very little about what was going on. What they did know is that when the commander would say, all right, this group is going to go across the top and you're going to charge no man's land, you did that. The commanders and the generals behind the scenes were the ones planning the war. He said probably the civilians back in England knew more about what was going on than we did in the front. We just obeyed the next command. And that's really our responsibility. When we know what God wants, and sometimes what God wants, sometimes what God wants is very simple. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Like, it's not actually that complicated. It's just complicated when we try to wiggle our way around it and make it some other way. So, Melissa's, uh, one of Melissa's family uh, went through some pretty rough times. And I won't share the whole story, but um, she had every right. She had every right to be full of bitterness by the world's standards. Her husband rejected her, turned his back on his faith, walked away from her, flaunted women in front of her, desperately trying to get her to get a divorce, give him a divorce. And the judge said, if, he, if she still loves you, I'm not going to grant it. And so she stuck it out. And I'll tell you why I think she stuck it out. Because even though she couldn't see much, she knew the God who could see much. And the God who could see much said, even if there's just one spouse who's walking with me, the children are sanctified. The children are made holy through the one who's willing to do what it takes to walk with the Lord. And so she said she would teach her children Bible stories because her husband didn't want her to talk about it. She would teach her children Bible stories on her knees scrubbing the floor. And all three of her children are strong believers walking with the Lord today. Was it hard? It was actually miserable. But the reality is, is that is what it looks like to focus on what God tells you to do. Focus on His picture, not your picture. All right, third point, fear the Lord and walk in integrity. So we don't want to be put to shame. We certainly don't want to be put to shame for ourselves. Like that, what I mean by that is I don't want to be someone who puts myself to shame. 
I don't want to be the person who gets called on the carpet and then is guilty. I can't help it when someone else in my life is a source of shame to me. I can pray for them, I can work with them, but I can't help their actions, but I can help mine. So um, he goes through uh, the center of this, of this passage, and he's talking about what it means to actually walk with the Lord, what it means to see his truth. And then he comes to verse 12, and this is what it says. And I think this is, actually, I think this is the center of the whole passage. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. And as I was studying, it was kind of a neat little side note. As I was studying for this, I pulled out a Bible. Uh, I was looking for different translations, and I pulled out a Bible that I had used um, in my early 20s. And open up to this passage. I haven't looked at that Bible in a long time. Open up to this passage and had a bunch of underlined verses in it. And one of them, uh, I would, I would, if I found something that I thought was from the Lord, I'd underline it and then I would, you know, write a little note along with it and, and date it. And the date was May twenty fifth, two thousand and two. And this was my note for this verse: Is this what God wants me to do to prepare so that He can show me who I'm supposed to marry? And it was within a month of that that he directed me to pursue Melissa. So I thought that was a kind of a neat little, it was a neat little catch. I didn't know. I had no idea at that point what God wanted. But I knew that I wanted God and I knew why I wanted his way. And then he directed me. So the, the crux of this chapter, what man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. You want to, be, to, to guard yourself as well as you can from being put to shame to shaming yourself, to shaming your family, to being somebody who the Lord is ashamed of. Fear the Lord and walk in integrity. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way they shall choose. And then it says in verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. It's, I don't know if it's popular or not, I don't know if it's unpopular, but fearing the Lord is one of those things that I know for myself growing up was hard to understand. What does it mean to fear God? Fear God. I'd be afraid of him. I was afraid of him. scared to death of him. My youngest son is not afraid of me, but he has respect for me. And though he does occasionally backtalk, he knows he's not supposed to be backtalking. There is a respect that's built in because I'm the dad, and that's enough. I think that fearing the Lord really boils down to this. I look at him as the boss. He has the right to tell me what to do. He made me. He made everything around me. He deserves that, and so I need to give him that respect. It would be no less respect that I would give to um, a king or an emperor in this life, but it would certainly be more. Walk in integrity. You know, a lot of people in today's world say things like, um, if, you, if you start talking about walking in truth, walking in holiness, they want to backpedal because it's all about grace and it's all about God. God doing in us. And that is true. It is without, without Christ, we're done for. But the fact of the matter is the Scripture is full of the power of Christ in us causing us to be transformed. And so when we walk in integrity, which is the last, verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait on thee. That's his, that's his final call because he says in verse 20, don't let me be ashamed. I'm trusting in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. I want to I wanna, um, just say as a point of reference. The fact of the matter is, is all of us fail at some point. But a man, of in, a man of integrity can fail. But a man of integrity doesn't normally fail. Otherwise, he doesn't have integrity. So when you want something like integrity, I can guarantee you one thing. You're going to have to fight for it. If you want to be known that whatever you do, wherever you are, you, when you talk here on Sunday, you're exactly the same on Tuesday on the job. For you ladies, whatever you are here this morning, and how you treat your, your, your children, or how you treat your husband, that's what it looks like in your home. If you're going to be someone who has integrity, 
then you're going to have to live it, and having to live it means it's going to be incredibly difficult. So you fearing the Lord gives you the power to actually bring that into your life. I'm going to turn to um, Peter, and we're going to. This is going to be sort of the closing out of it here in First Peter four. So this ties it to the New Testament. First Peter four verse fifteen. He's talking about um, suffering and being ashamed for the sake of Christ. This is what he says. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God on this behalf. So what is he saying? Is he saying that I could be ashamed if I was suffering for being a Christian? Yeah, he's saying that. Don't be ashamed. Paul says to Onesiphorus, um, in another part, he says, you weren't ashamed of my bonds. You came, to, you came to Rome and you helped me out. You weren't ashamed of me as a Christian, as a fellow believer. And so we have the ability to be ashamed. We have the ability to be ashamed of each other. We have the ability to be ashamed of ourselves. And Jesus, at another point, says, if you, don't, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. In other words, don't be ashamed of being my follower. Now, How, how do I take this? How do I take this and do anything with it? Because the fact of the matter is, is I agree with you that a lot of what I said this morning sounds cliche and it sounds too simplistic to be realistic. But oftentimes, unfortunately, we measure success by total success. We don't measure it by small steps. And you can't get to the top of the steps by leaping. Well, I can't get to the top of the steps by leaping. Maybe my kids could here, but i got to climb them one at a time at this point. And so success in life is direction. If I'm going up those steps, I'm going to have to start somewhere. So this week, this week, listen to me. If you know that the enemy can defeat you, and you know that he defeats you by getting you to see or help in causing you to look at your own truth as opposed to God's truth. And you know that there is a real truth that is God's truth. And you can focus on it. And focusing on it helps you to fear the Lord, which gives you strength to walk in integrity. Then you have the keys to be slightly, slightly more mature by the end of next week, by the end of this coming week, than you are right now. It's literally, literally that simple. Eric said to me the other day, just not big enough. When am I going to be big? And I wanted to say, please take your time. He's ready to be big. He, he, it's, it's time to do stuff. And he's frustrated because he's not growing fast enough. Supposing that this week you took this home. Supposing this is your application. You asked the Lord this week to help you see his truth in a situation that you didn't see before. And I don't mean big situations. I mean like your day is toast and everything has gone wrong and all you want to do is scream at somebody and hit something. And you don't because that's your truth and his truth is bigger than that. That is literally, that is literally growth. And we don't even give that to ourselves. Oh, I failed because I wanted to. No, no. What you failed to do in that moment was to see his truth. And then you took a deep breath and you saw his truth. If you could come back next week with one episode in which you did not lose your temper, one episode that you did not look at pornography, you're stepping forward. You're gaining ground. And you won't be ashamed in the end. He's working on you. And I'll tell you, it's tough. Life stinks. There are some days, Ephesians says that there's evil days, and there are some days it's like, man, I think the whole world ganged up on me to squish me. And sometimes you have those days. Some of you might be having a day like that right now, right here. This is your application. Ask the Lord to help you see this truth, His truth, in a situation this week that is causing you to be ashamed now. Maybe my truck will be a little bit more organized by the end of this week. The last verse in, in 1 Peter 4 says, Wherefore, listen to this, let them that suffer according to the will of God, because it is, after all, His world, and He allows things to come, commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator, 
Let them not be ashamed. And I had to think about as we, as we close this, and we're going to um, have the, the communion, the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. This is why I had to think about this. David is writing this in about 1000 BC, and he's crying out to the Lord, don't let me be ashamed. And he has no idea, no idea what's coming. Think about that. We can look back and we can see David and he's cool. When he grows up, he's a shepherd boy. He kills Goliath. He's amazing. He's the greatest king that... And then hundreds of years go on. And hundreds of years later, through David's lineage, Christ comes on the scene. There is no way that David can understand that from here. There's no way that he could see what hung on the line for him following God. There's no way, even for his sin with Bathsheba... The splash that it makes in Scripture. Can you imagine if somebody did that in your life and wrote it down in a book and 3,000 years later we'd still be reading about your mess up? That would be terrifying. So this week, you have the ability. If you're walking with the Lord and the Holy Spirit is in you, you have the ability to choose His truth instead of your truth in a situation that would cause you to be ashamed otherwise. Do something about it. Fearing the Lord and walking in integrity will not stop the enemy from attacking you, but it will help you maintain a proper perspective in the attack. Now, as I was saying, a thousand years before Christ, David is crying out, Lord, don't let me be ashamed. And down through the years, as David can't see, hundreds of years later, Christ comes on the scene. And the book of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I can almost, as I was imagining this, I could almost, if you could time travel, hear God as David's crying out a thousand years before, you could hear God in the future saying, David, I got it. You won't be ashamed because my son's going to take your shame for you. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.